Well, you may have uh, a few years ago seen this this style uh, going around. It was uh, really all the the rage. It was very popular. Uh, all of the uh, celebrities were were wearing these certain kinds of hats and T-shirts, and and uh, it was all very popular. And if you know me at all, you know that I tend to catch on to things uh, a little bit late. I watch TV shows about four years after they're off the air. Um, you know, like right about now, I'm saying, hey, have you ever heard of this great show, Alias, right? Uh, everybody heard of that show, 24, amazing, right? So I'm, I catch on to things a little bit late. And so today, I, I just want to um, uh, let you know of this style that I think is so important and uh, something that I'm coaching on to. And uh, so I just wanted to reveal that to you today. This is the style here. Do you guys see it? Come on now. Jesus is my homeboy, right? You guys remember that? This is, uh, this is the, the style that we're going for. And so I thought just in honor of today's message, which is homeboy Jesus, I would preach in my Jesus is my homeboy shirt. So yes, we got some woos and we got some people that are offended, but it's all good. It's all good, right? Because we're, we're here, the body of Christ. So, uh, so I want to... I wanna, Preach for my Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt, right? And uh, this, this actually um, originated, it actually has a story behind it. A lot of people just think it was this fashion uh, fad that kind of went through, but uh, Jesus is my homeboy actually has a story behind it. Here's, the story goes like this. Uh, a guy was in L.A. Uh, he was in the wrong part of town several years ago, and uh, he w- became the, the victim or potential victim of this sort of random gang violence, right? This is true. I checked multiple sources online, uh, and uh, everything you read online is true, right? <laughs> and so this guy becomes a, a, a victim of, of would-be random uh, gang violence. He has a gun to his head. And uh, just not knowing what to say, he, he looks at the perpetrator and he says, dude, Jesus is my homeboy. And, and at that moment, he pulls the gun back, unlatches the trigger, and, uh, and, and the whole gang gets saved. It's true. It's true. You guys are looking at me like you don't believe me. Uh, it's fine. It's fine. Google it. <laughs> Jesusismyhomeboy.com. I'm telling you, it is the truth. Now, we're in a series, for some of you that are, this is your first time here, and you're wondering what in the world is going on with this church. Uh, We're in the second week of a series that we're calling, Dude, Where's My Jesus? And uh, what we're looking at is the different perceptions of Christ, and we're seeing if those are are really actually true to Scripture. And uh, the reality is, is that as this fashion fad, Jesus is my homeboy, kind of uh, exploded several years ago, uh, the question becomes, why in the world do we tend to think of Jesus as our homeboy, and, and what does that really mean, or is it just a fashion, right? Or, or can we actually say that we've come to think of Christ as a homeboy, or uh, as, a, as a sort of uh, Jesus is my, is my buddy? And uh, the, the question becomes, why would this movement reach such high exposure that celebrities, it becomes the cool thing to sport your, your Jesus is my homeboy shirt or hat uh, or any number of, of uh, apparel items, right? And so we have all these sorts of questions of, is Jesus really our homeboy? Is it just a fashion fad? Or is there some deeper things that we can begin to understand from this 
this, uh, this reality in our, in our culture. And, and I think um, the, the reason that it really became pro- prominent, and I think that we actually as a culture have become, to, to have come to think about Christ as our homeboy is because of this. You and I tend to be most comfortable with a Jesus who is just like us. Right? Do you remember in the clip that we showed uh, last week, it was from uh, the, the movie Talladega Nights. I do not recommend the movie. In fact, I've not seen it. Right? I've not seen all of it. But we showed this clip, and it was about, uh, it was about I like my Jesus to, to party, right? Because I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. And, uh, and I like to picture Jesus as, as a, a ninja fighting off evil samurai. Do you guys remember the clip? Because, we, we, you see, we like to sort of fashion Jesus into, into a Jesus that is most like us. Now, I, I, looked, at, I looked at the definition of, of a homeboy, according to Webster's Dictionary, and... Uh, because Webster's never wrong, right? And, and, and here's what it said. I thought this was, this was really much more profound than I was expecting. Webster says that a homeboy is, is uh, someone that is from our own neighborhood, from the same background. Uh, and, and I think that you and I, we tend to be most comfortable with a Jesus that is from the same neighborhood, we like to think of Christ as though he's from the same background as us. I like to party. I like my Jesus to party. We're most comfortable with a Jesus that is exactly like us. Because Jesus within me, right? We talk a lot about Christ living in us and, and working through us and, and living in our heart, right? That's what we tell all of our kids. Ask Christ into your heart. And the reality is, is that Jesus within us makes a much more sense if Jesus is like us. If we fashion Jesus to be exactly like you and I, then we're much more comfortable with the imagery of having Jesus living inside of us. And if Christ is like us, it makes him much more approachable. And we have this sort of tendency to fabricate the most approachable version of Christ that we can imagine. And, and, and this, of course, is a very natural leap for our culture, right? Because in our culture, uh, you are very, very important. Uh, the culture sends a message that what you want, the way that you want it, uh, everything that, that, you know, your space online, all these kinds of things, our culture tells us that the, the message that everything tends to be about you, right? Uh, in fact, um, every, all kinds of stores will adopt marketing campaigns that put us in the, in the, on the throne, so to speak, that put us in, in the primary chair. In fact, in 2006, Time Magazine names, every year Time Magazine does a person of the year. And in 2006, uh, just as, the, as this kind of um, the, the reality of MySpace Online and Facebook and all these th- social media was really gearing up, 2006 person of the year was you. Did you know that? You, each and every one of you, are the person of the year in 2006. You didn't get a medal, did you? I didn't either. But Time Magazine was essentially saying and affirming that you are the most important, right? And so in this culture, in order to get Jesus to fit into this picture of a self-centered culture where it's all about us, then we have to make Christ look like us. Does that make sense? Are you with me? And so this idea of Jesus being our homeboy is the idea of making Jesus familiar to who we are. And here's what has happened. 
Now, I promise you, this is good, so listen closely. Genesis tells us that we are made in God's image. But what we tend to do is remake God into our image. Scripture affirms that we are the ones that bear the image of God. But oftentimes what we do is we flip that and we try to remake God so that he reflects us. This is the Jesus is my homeboy syndrome, right? That Jesus is a reflection of me. He's from the same neighborhood. He's from the same background. Now, in this kind of remaking of of God into our image, if we can make Jesus look like me and act like me and talk like me and agree with me, then I'm most comfortable with him and we can fit him into our lives. And so we turn Jesus into something that we want. It's the, I like my Jesus to party because I like to party. Or maybe a little bit personal, uh, we want Jesus uh, to be okay or to be cool with uh, you sleeping with your girlfriend because you have a modern Jesus, right? Your Jesus isn't uh, from, from the 50s. My Jesus is a Jesus of today. So he's all cool with that. He's okay with these things that I, I, I just kind of push aside and I say, you know, these things aren't sin and, and they don't matter. We want our Jesus to be cool with materialism. Right? And the list could go on and on because there's no limit to the ways in which we remake God into our image. In fact, listen to what scholar N.T. Wright has to say on this issue. He says this, The God of the Bible is not necessarily the God that you want. My confused desires certainly don't fit in uh, with who he actually is. And it's just as well. Because what matters more is the God who actually made me and the God with whom, whether I want to or not, I have to do business. And he is so much bigger and he is so much greater than anything I could imagine that I could ever imagine or or that I've got him tied down or that I've got him pigeonholed. We need to constantly be looking harder at the God of the Bible. Otherwise, we shall discover gradually the picture that we have of him gets domesticated and whittled down to something we can live with. And gods that we live comfortably with are idols. Right? What happens is that if we don't constantly go back to Scripture and say, who is this Jesus really? Who is this God really? Our our picture and idea of him is going to be domesticated and whittled down until ultimately we're very comfortable with who he is and he no longer challenges us. It's just the Jesus that's just like me and I kind of add him on as an accessory to my life. And so I wonder if in an effort to make Jesus more approachable and more likable and more like us. And this is, a, this is what I want to talk to you this morning about. I wonder if, if in an effort to make Jesus into our homeboy, we've lost the kingship of Christ. And so today I want to talk to you about the kingship of Jesus Christ. Because when you and I gather for worship, we are not gathering into the presence of a homeboy someone who's like us from the same background, we are entering into the presence of a king, or should I say, the king. We are coming into the king's court when we gather for worship. And we cannot forget that, and we cannot let go of that, because I feel like we've gone a little bit too far in the homeboy Jesus realm that we've lost the kingship of Christ. Because a homeboy is someone who's just like us. He's from the same place. They live in the same neighborhood. But Jesus is not equal to you and I. He is the king of the universe. Let me give you just a sample of scriptures that speak to the kind of kingship of Christ that I'm talking about. Are you with me so far? Does that make sense? 
Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every other name, then that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge, or some translations say confess, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. John chapter 18, Jesus is before Pilate, and Pilate asks him, Are you a king? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not from this world. Now, let me just give a, a, a side note here. right? I feel like that is really critical, and I want to mention something about this passage in, with Jesus before Pilate. Because a lot of times it's misunderstood to be that the kingdom of God or God's kingdom is not of this world. And when we see that word of, we think that God's kingdom is sort of this non-physical kingdom that is somewhere up there in the sky, right? But that's not what the original language is saying. It's not saying that the God, my kingdom is not of this world. It's saying that my kingdom is not from this world. In other words, it doesn't originate in this world. It doesn't originate from worldly empires, and it doesn't carry the same characteristics as a worldly empire would have, and the evil that goes along with that, but it is very physical, and it is very present right here, right now, is what Jesus is saying. So there's an important distinct difference uh, of this, my kingdom is not of this world, and my kingdom is not from this world. And the passage is saying that my kingdom is not from this world. It's not, it does not originate here. Does that make sense? That is a um, side note. That was for free, and it's a sermon within a sermon. Y'all good? Okay. So the point is, is that Pilate says, are you a king? And Jesus affirms that, yes, I am a king, but my kingdom is not from this world. It does not originate here. In John chapter 19, the next chapter, when Jesus is crucified, you know the charge that is over his head. It is written that he is the king of the Jews. And I love this, that after the Jesus movement has happened, after the resurrection, the disciples are, are, are going out. The church is moving forward through the apostle Paul and his missionary work. And when they're in Thessalonica, in Acts chapter 17, verse 7, it says, they, that is Paul and his companions, are defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, and his name is Jesus. Paul and his apostles are going out planting churches under the name, under the reality that there is another king besides Caesar, and his name is Jesus. Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. In Luke chapter 8, this is just a sampling of, of the kingship of Christ in Scripture. In Luke chapter 8, verse 25, after Jesus has calmed the storm, the disciples look around and say, Who is this? For he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. We get this sense in Scripture that Christ rules over all, and he rules over even nature. Now, I want you to know today that Jesus is a king. And in our effort to personalize Christ, which I feel like is important, we can't lose the kingship, the lordship of Christ. And what some of you are going to say to me, that's great. But why does that matter? Right? Some of you are like, that's that's good. I'm, I'm on board with you. Uh, I'm inspired or I'm about to fall asleep. So you better tell me, why does that matter? Here's why I feel like this is important. When you are going through the impossible times in your life, like when the times when you have that addiction that you just can't seem to get to the other side of, 
You just can't seem to find victory. You fight, you pray, you have a few weeks, few days, few months of victory, and then it rears its ugly head again and, and grabs a hold. In those moments when you're fighting that addiction, in the moments where you're trying to find a job when the market is down, can I hear an amen from the seniors, right? You know, when, when you're sitting there and you're like, this is impossible. I'm trying to find a job. The market is down. Nobody's hiring. But i got to make ends meet, right? Or those times when you have a job and you're trying to make ends meet at the end of the month. Those impossible times in our lives. When we are trying to heal from the loss of a loved one. When we're trying to achieve the dream of our life that we feel like God is calling us to. And yet we hit all kinds of barriers. When we have a child that we've raised to know the Lord. And yet he's running away from the love of God. And there's nothing that we can seem to do to bring him back. When, when we're struggling to even have children. And what that looks like and all the challenges with that. And when we have this depression that seems to be so crippling in our lives. That we, in this, we find this, this sort of purposelessness to life and we we come to the end of the day we may act friendly throughout the day we may have all these kinds of community and friends but at the end of the day when we're in our rooms we feel so alone and isolated and depressed in those moments in our lives that all of us face my question to you today is would you rather have a homeboy who is just like you, who is no different from you, who has no more resources than you to help see you through that? Or would you rather have a king whom you serve, whom all the resources of the king's court are made available to you in those times? Because what you and I need in the dire moments of life is not a Jesus who is exactly like us. What we need is a Jesus who sits on the throne of the universe, who is able to see us through, who has all the resource in the world that is made available to us. What we need is a king and a savior, not primarily a friend. Are you with me? That's why it matters that we cannot lose the kingship of Jesus Christ and who he actually is. We've got to realize that he sits on the throne of the universe. We want the exalted one. We want the creator. We want the word of God available to us in those moments. We don't just need a friend. And wouldn't we rather place all of these things at the feet of the king who has all the resources in the world to meet your needs? Now the temptation from here and what probably some of you are thinking is, I know where he's going from here. I've heard this sermon before. I'm supposed to take all the junk and all the trash and all the difficulty and all the challenge in my life and I'm just supposed to give it to Jesus. Guess what, Pastor? I've tried that. And you might be asking, how in the world do I give something to a king that I can't see with my eyes? And how do I give something to a king? How do I give something that, isn't, that I can't feel and touch and grab with my hands? In other words, how do I give him my, my struggle with depression and purposelessness? How do I give him the, this, this reality in our life that doesn't have an object that I can grab and give it to someone? How am I supposed to give those things away? Now, the message that you may have heard before is, is what I call um, faith according to, to, to um, kind of tightening our, our uh, belt, right? Um, you, you, back in the old days, they might say tighten your bootstraps or tighten your belt, and that's a way of talking about just try harder, 
right? And so a lot of times when we come to this, these questions of how do I give something to God? How do I give something to Christ? How do I lay it at the feet of the king who has all the resources? Sometimes the message that you hear is just try harder, tighten your boots, pull up your bootstraps, tighten your belt, and it's faith through my own effort. And, it, and it's this idea of, of, you know what? Some of you have probably been told this before. You know what? You just need more faith. Really? Because I promise you, I am mustering up all the faith that I can even think about. I mean, I am doing my very doggone best to give this to Christ. I am doing my very best to muster up more faith. And so my, my argument and, and, and my point that I want to tell you today is that I believe that giving things over to Christ does not look like tightening your belt or just having more faith. But I believe it looks a lot more like falling face down before the king and opening ourselves up to the work of Christ in our lives. But the question still comes up, okay, I want to do that. I don't want to, I don't want to depend on my own effort. I don't want to have faith in my own ability to conjure up faith, right? Sometimes our faith is misplaced, and our faith is in our own ability to have faith. And so I don't want to do that, Pastor. I'm on board with you. I've gone down the effort route, and it doesn't work, and so I want to fall face down. And a lot of you are asking, okay, to fall face down, what do I do, Right? I mean, ultimately and always, the question comes, what is my role? What can I do? And so the way that I've come to think about this is that it's not, we we don't practice faith through our own effort, but there are, and we don't give things over to God through our own effort, but there are things that we can do that allow, that open ourselves up to the work of God in our lives. And so we're placing our faith and our trust in God as we participate in practices that will open ourselves up to his work in our life. Does that make sense? Do you understand the difference? Right? And so I want to give you just three things that I believe that you can do. As if, you're, if that's where you're at today and you have, you're going through a challenge, a struggle in your life, and you need a king to, to lay those things at his feet and allow him to work with all of his resources, I want to give you three things that you can do that will open you up to that work of God in your life. And then begin trusting that Jesus Christ, the king of the universe, will see you through. He may not answer it in the way that you expect or the way that you want, but his promise is to always be with us, to never forsake us, and to always be by our side. So he will walk through it with you, and he will work in your lives in ways that you expect, some ways you don't expect. I believe if you do some of these three things. These aren't exclusive. This isn't a comprehensive list. These are just some ideas that I have uh, that I believe are scriptural and biblical that we can do to open ourselves up to the work of God when we need to lay things at the feet of Jesus Christ, the King of the universe. You ready? The first thing is, you have got to be part of a community. You have got to be part of a community. Now, that may sound pretty simplistic, and and it is simple, but it's not simplistic. Right? 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 3 and 5 say, Praise be to the God, our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. 
The reality is, is that all of us go through challenges and struggles in our life. And many of us will receive comfort from God in those moments. So that when you and I have a brother or sister that's going through a similar time or a difficulty as we ourselves have been comforted from God, that is not something that we're to keep to ourselves, but it's something that we move on and we go and we share it with other people. And we say, you know what, when I was in your spot, when I was there, and it may not be the same exact situation and not be the same circumstances, but when I was hurting at the level that you were hurting, here's what I learned about God. Here's what I learned about the tendency in myself. Here's what I learned about the importance of community. You and I have got to stick together if we're going to make it through. And part of the way that we open ourselves up to the work of God in our lives is being vulnerable enough to be in community with one another. And it is, it is our role and our responsibility to, as we are comforted by God, to go and comfort someone else as we have experienced God's comfort. And then again, in Romans chapter 15, Paul talks about this again. He says, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are without strength. You and I have moments in our faith where we are unbreakable. Yes, you feel those moments of your faith where you're like, I am so strong. I have so much faith in the midst of this circumstance. I believe and I have confidence in the God who who can meet my every need, who has the resources of the entire world. And we have a strong faith. And we have a brother or sister that cannot conjure up faith of their own. And so they can crawl up inside of our faith and we can help encourage them and be a help to them and be God's life to them. And then there are moments when when you used to be strong and yet now you feel weak. There is someone else, a brother or sister, a trusted friend who in that moment is feeling strong. Let me tell you that we cannot give things over to God outside of the community of the body of believers. Hold on now, or I'll really start preaching, right? We have got to stick together. But here's what I hear more often than I can even count. People come to me and they say, Pastor, I'm not going to be in church for a while. Man, why? You know, what's going on? What's going on? I'm just really going through a hard time, and I've got to figure it out. And I'm like, oh, do not do that. In the moment when you're going through a hard time and you have something to figure out, the first place you ought to be is inside the community of the body of believers. But I have heard time and time and time again, I'm not going to be in church for a while because I got some things to figure out. Listen, get in a church. If it's this one, awesome. If it's not, that's okay. What's important is that you are part of a community of the body of believers that can come alongside of you so that you can plug into there. That way when you have a problem come up in your life, the first thing you want to do is not escape, but lean in into that community and have them encourage you. Because here's the deal. Problems enjoy isolation. Now, some people say misery loves company, right? And there is that. We love to gather around those who are also miserable and talk about how miserable we are. But ultimately, problems will try to isolate themselves. If you're going through something, the the first notion for a lot of people is to, to isolate and say, I don't want anybody to hear about this and I don't want anybody to know about this. Now, what I'm not advocating to you this morning is that you grab a bullhorn and shout it from the rooftop, right? But what I am advocating for you is not to isolate yourself because isolation will kill you. Isolation will eventually kill you. Um, I, I've been, um, 
part of a, a group of pastors of other Church of the Nazarene pastors in, in northern Colorado. And, and I will often hear stories of, of area pastors um, that will go through a really difficult time. And on the flip side of that, uh, the pastors will say, we should have seen it coming because they started isolating themselves. And so isolation for you and for I will kill us. If we're going to practically give things over to God, we have got to be part of a community. And the power of communal prayer is also phenomenal. Getting together and praying, not just in, in the privacy of your own room or your own home or, with your, or to yourself, uh, but rather gathering in a community and praying together can be very, very powerful as we seek to give things over to God. So the first thing is you've got to be part of a community. The second thing is that don't leave God, but lean into God. In the middle of those times when you're trying to figure something out, you, you are, are going through a difficult time, uh, again, in the same way that we have a tendency to leave community, we also have a tendency to shake our fist at God and say, yep, tried that, didn't work. Uh, and, and I would encourage you to not do that. Fight against that tendency. But rather in those moments, lean into God. Be honest with God. God, this is what I'm going through. This is, this is, uh, this is how I feel. It's okay to be honest with God. And lean in. And of course, the classic example of this is Job, who was, had everything taken from him. And, yet, and, and his friends were saying, curse God and die. Forget it. Shake your fist to God and move on with life. And yet he remained faithful. He leaned in to the presence of God in his life. And I would encourage you to do that. Now, these, of course, work together. As we're involved in community and doing that, we're going to also lean into God through that community. And so it's really powerful stuff. So don't leave God, but lean in. And in leaning in, you'll be opening yourself up to his work in your life. Does this, is this helpful? Does this make sense? Number three is a, a, a phrase that was coined by Pastor Stephen Furtick, and that is to push while you pray. In other words, that we, have, we also, as for as much as we have a tendency to de- depend on our own effort, we sometimes also have a tendency to, to just place um, this, this sort of empty thing at, at the feet of God where we say, now go and do this, but I'm not going to play any part. And so Stephen Furtick, uh, and, and I fully agree with this, says we need to push while we pray. If you're praying for a job in, in a down market, it is time to, be, to, to sharpen up your resume and start filling out some applications and start calling some bosses and some heads of HR and start pushing while you pray. And God will honor that. But here's, uh, here's what I want to say to you, though, is that sometimes we place our faith and our confidence in the pushing and not in God himself. And so I would say to you, yes, push while you pray. Seek to to prepare yourself for the answer that you're believing God for, but don't ever cross the line of placing your faith in the effort that you're putting forward rather than in the God whom your faith lies. Does that make sense? We have got to make sure that our faith is in God, not in our action. And I want to give you just an example of pushing while you pray and, and, and not placing our faith in, in, uh, in not placing our faith in our own ability, but placing our faith in God. In Ezra chapter 10, verse 3, the people of Israelites, uh, the, the Israelites have sinned against God by intermarrying, marrying women from another tribe. And, and their response to that is this, this faith-filled 
um, weeping and mourning for the sin that they have committed. And then they push while they pray because they cast out the women and the children. In other words, the source of the sin. They cast out and get rid of the source of sin in their life and then place their faith in God to begin to renew them. Does that make sense? Push while you pray, but make sure your faith is in God, not in your own activity. Are you with me? Do you understand the distinction there? It's a really important distinction. Because... I don't know about you, but it's really easy for me to put my faith in the things that I am doing to be faithful rather than place my faith in the king of the universe. And so I'll go to God and I'll be like, God, I did this. What's up with you? Where are you at? Right? I mean, I did this. I'm pushing while I'm praying. And yet you're not honoring this. And I wonder if sometimes when we begin talking like that, if our faith isn't ultimately in the action that we did, not in the God who has promised to provide. So God promises to provide, and we push while we pray, so we set up 401Ks. But how often when the market goes down, do we say, oh, Duke, I'm, you know, I'm putting my trust in the 401K because it went down, rather than I'm putting my trust in God who has promised to provide, regardless of what the 401K is doing. Are you with me? Be careful not to place your faith in your action, but place your faith in the God who has promised to walk with you. Now, inevitably, some of you are are uncomfortable with this picture of a kingly Christ because you want to, you want to, to guard against it and you want to say, yes, Christ is a king. I'm a, I agree with that. But we also, Pastor Andy, can't lose, fact, uh, that, can't lose the fact that he intimately cares about the details of our lives, that he has counted the number of hairs on our head, lest we not lose that in light of this kingly sermon, right? And, and some of you are with me. And what I want to argue is, and say to you is, yes, I agree. And what we find in the person of Jesus Christ is this perfect mesh between a person who is a king and has all the resources in the world to meet our need, and yet he is a personal king. He is a loving king. And he is a king who has promised to be with you and to walk beside you. And he intimately cares about and knows about the details of your life. There is no thing too small that you, that you cannot bring it to God in prayer because he knows. You can lay everything at the feet of this personal and loving king. And there's a story in the Old Testament that I believe perfectly illustrates this point. It's the story of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth who? Mephibosheth. In 2 Samuel chapter 7. King Saul uh, is King David's enemy. Jonathan, let me set the stage for you before we, before we read this passage. So King Saul is King David's enemy. Jonathan is King Saul's son. And David's best friend. Right? You're getting, you're getting the, the feeling of their relationship. And then Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son. King Saul and King David are enemies. Jonathan is King Saul's son, but he's also the best friend to King David. And Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son. Get it? Got it? 
good. <laughs> okay, that's the picture. Now, after Saul has died, it would be typical, it would be usual, it would be standard operating procedure for King David, as the enemy of King Saul, to seek out the rest of Saul's family and have them killed, right? This is the ancient world. This would be typical, standard, no big deal. My enemy I'm going to kill off, has died. I'm going to kill off the rest of his family just to prove a point, right? That would be a standard operating procedure. But instead, what David does in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is that David asks, is there anyone in Saul's family that is left to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? In other words, since my best friend is my enemy's son, I'm going to seek out his family and not seek to destroy them or kill them or wipe them off the planet. What I'm going to seek to do is bless them and honor them and show kindness to them. King David is totally flipping what would tip what would be a typical action and the only family member left we learn from 2 Samuel chapter 7 is Mephibosheth and we hear this detail of his life he is lame in both feet he is lame in both feet he is broken and as someone who is disabled in this culture, he is cast out. He is considered not worthy of any favor or any honor whatsoever. And his name, Mephibosheth, literally means one who spreads shame. And so this, this, this only family member left of, of Saul's family, one who spreads shame, he's cast out. He he lives in this no-name place called Lodabar. And yet David says, can I, is there anyone left to whom I can show kindness? I want to read to you what happens in this story. And I believe it perfectly illustrates the reality of the personal king that you and I seek to serve. It's in, uh, it's actually chapter nine. I keep saying chapter seven, but it's in chapter nine. Second Samuel chapter nine. It says this, verses 3 through 8. The king asked, Is there still no one left in the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? And Ziba, or Ziba answered, There is still a son of Jonathan, and he is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. This is King David. And Ziba answered, He is at the house of, of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. And so King David had him brought to him from Lodabar into the house of uh, Machir, son of Amiel. And when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pray uh, and give him honor. And then David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Do not be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. And then skip down to verse 11, the last part. It says this. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table And he was lame in both feet. You see, King David gives us a perfect illustration of the King, Jesus Christ, whom you and I serve. That you and I are broken, we're cast out, we're separated from the King because of our sin. And yet he calls to us. And he makes the way for us to sit at the King's table. You and I, friends, are not even worthy to be outside of the king's court. 
but the king of the universe, the creator, God, the word of God, Jesus Christ, has called our name and has carried us from outside the king's court to eat at the king's table where we will eat forevermore. This king that we serve is not just a king that rules uh, absently over the world. He is a loving king, a caring king, and he has carried us to his table where we will eat. And what I believe this morning is that God is speaking to many of you about this reality of a king who so deeply loves us that he would take us from being outside the court to sit at, his king, at the table. A king who, who has every resource in the world to help meet our need, to see us through the challenge in our life. And many of you, I believe, are going through one of those times, where the, one of those impossible times in life. And what you need today is not a homeboy Jesus, who, some fake picture of Jesus who is from the same neighborhood and has equal resource to you you and I, and as a reflection of us, what you need is the king of the universe, the king Jesus Christ, who has all the resources in the world to help meet your need, and you need to give those things over to him. And I believe God is calling many of you to make a commitment to do that and to do that very thing. You have something in your life you need to lay at the king's feet, and you're going to begin practicing these three things that I've talked about and allowing God to begin working in your life.